Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Cadwell Turnbull. He is the award-winning author of The Lesson in his new book, his outstanding new book, is No Gods, No Monsters, which is published by our friends at Blackstone Publishing. Cadwell, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And first, uh, before we dive into your excellent new novel, I met you briefly in a signing line at Book Expo in New York for your previous novel. And I was thrilled to see the blurbs on the back of your book at the time by my friends, John Castle and Wilton Barnhart. Uh, Turns out that you, uh, like me, got a degree uh, from North Carolina State University. Um, And uh, mine was in literature, though I was lucky enough to participate in some of the MFA workshops. Uh, Tell me what your journey has been like from a student at North Carolina State University to now the new faculty member in the MFA program for creative writing at NC State's English department. What has this moment in time been like for you considering everything going on in the world for the past couple of years? Wow. Yeah. Um, big question. Surreal. Just like, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, I don't know how to explain it. Like the thing. So, you know, I finished my MFA in 2016 Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, John Kessel and Wilton Barnhart were my, my um, mentors and my advisors mm-hmm. and, you know, encouraged me to write the novel and finish the novel. I didn't finish it during that, the MFA. My thesis was about half of the book and then short stories, which is what they don't advise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, I kind of, you know, did some other things for a while, kind of, you know, procrastinated on finishing the book and then, you know, things started coming together, you know, at a strange time. I was publishing short fiction, got, you know, got some interest from an agent, got into, you know, conversations with her, ended up, you know, signing with her and then, you know, going on to finish the book. You know, the the question she asked me once, you know, I signed was like, when are you going to finish this book? Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I gave like sort of like eight months, you know, it seemed like a reasonable amount of time and, you know, ended up finishing it in like about nine and, you know, going through a couple of rounds of revisions with her. Mm. And yeah, the book, you know, got some responses from from some publishers early on, Mm. uh, you know, mostly head scratching. (laughs) Um, They didn't know where to place it. You know, it's kind of, you know, has, you know, the lesson is, you know, the way one of them, you know, framed it, it was, it was too, too Spec for literary folks and to literary for spec folks. Mm. And, um, but, you know, Blackstone, when they responded, they responded, you know, they responded with such enthusiasm that, you know, we felt like this was going to be a good home. And it turned out it was, mm. you know, they treated the book really well. And mm. um, yeah, things, things started to happen from there. I was not expecting the lesson to have such a good response. I, I sort of had very pragmatic ideas about what would happen because I went through an MFA where mm-hmm. you see all of the examples of how things could go, the, the good and the bad. And I was like, if this could just be a good starting point for me to do more work, you know, just like a thing that I could use to convince people to let me keep writing, mm-hmm. um, that would be good enough for me. And then there was, you know, a, a pretty good response to the book and, you know, I, you know, did a reading at NC State 
and I found out that, you know, my, my mentor at the time, I mean, my mentor, um, John Kessel, um, was retiring and really, you know, I had, I had aspirations of getting into teaching, but really if I was going to go anywhere, it would be NC state because NC state's program is just unique. It's, it's, um, it's, it's literary, but it's also friendly to spec. And there's like a really good relationship and dynamic between those two things. Mm-hmm. You don't get that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I felt like um, that would be a place for me to, you know, build more community around that. You know, I, it, you know, being here, it felt like home. It felt mm-hmm. like a, you know, a good place. Um, me and my wife both love the area. And so when I found out that Kessel was retiring, I decided to, you know, just throw my hat in the ring. I don't, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if um, it was going to work out because I was so early in my career, still early in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I somehow managed to convince, the, you know, the faculty that they should take a chance on me. And so, you know, I'm here, um, you know, working with MFA students, loving it. It's been, you know, a very strange you know, journey up until this point. And then all of the stuff that's been happening in the world, it's, it's just weird. It's just a weird, weird time to have, to start a career in the midst of all of this other stuff. That's just once in a generation events. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's just surreal. Everything just feels really surreal half the time. Yeah, well, um, it's a great program. I'm glad you're here. I remember uh, speaking with Bell when they were interviewing for the position. Um, I think they made the right choice. And hey, uh, speaking of um, speaking of two spec for the literary crowd and two literary for the spec crowd, that's like John Kessel's pet peeve, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> They're yeah. one in the same. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, very good. Thank you, Cadwell. Let's now jump into No God no monsters first not a lot of books out there in the world are set uh in raleigh north carolina this book um is now a period piece as it opens in cameron village as opposed to the village district um (laughs) but what was what was behind your decision to set your books opening in cameron village oh that's hilarious i didn't even know it changed (laughs) um yeah i mean you know, just going there. We used to go there all the time after um, workshops, you know, meet up with some of the other MFA um, students and we would um, grab, you know, food from the, uh, what's the local bar? Is, is it Carolina Ale House? Am I remembering mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so we would, you know, hang out there all the time. It was something that, you know, you know, the lesson is very much rooted in my background in the Virgin Islands, you know, mm-hmm. where I grew up. And it just, you know, occurred to me that I I want to write about other places. And, you know, it's, I felt like it was a good idea to write about other places that I've been and know relatively intimately. I still, I always feel like a tourist everywhere else, but back home, but, mm-hmm. you know, it just felt like a good fit for, for Cal, the beginning of Cal's story, like where he ended up and where he's going and, um, yeah, it it's just, you know, pulling pulling some things from, you know, the 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 headspace. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that change uh of the name to the village district, I think that's only happened within like the last one to two months. It's a very recent thing. Oh, um, okay. 
Yeah, um, but very good, uh, Cadwell. And because we are a podcast that exists within a bookstore, um, which is a thread we'll be returning to, by the way, I have to ask you about the significance of Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being and your allusion to it and quotation from it at the beginning of your book. Could you tell us more about this? Yeah, um, I love that book. Um, I I, I think I read it, you know, very much like Cal. I read it in my early twenties, um, maybe maybe um, my eighteen, nineteen, or something like that around then, mm-hmm. and it just had an immediate impact on me. Just the just the style of it, you know. Um, it's really it's really postmodern, really you know, sort of experimental. The narrator kind of interjects a lot in the story. Um, there's moments that feel like essay. There's, um, you know, it has a very spare way of describing things. It has a very um, surreal way of intersecting the drama of the everyday lives with all of this like war that's happening in the background. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just so smartly done that I, you know, I've returned to it again and again. As I've grown, <laughs> you know, the, the, in, the initial things that caught my attention, all of the ideas, the philosophical ideas in the book, um, have um, sort of taken a backseat to some of the, you know, other aspects of the book. I think that I, um, you know, I still love the book so much. I have criticisms of certain things in the book. I think that it's very, um, it's very much from a male point of view. It's, it's very uh, much from a European point of view you know like um there's a there's a line pretty early on in the book that dismisses wars in african kingdoms you know Mm. as being meaningless in history or in you know in um in any time in you know to the to the um to the ongoings of the world and i thought you know what a strange position to have (laughs) but Mm. at first when i was when i was reading it i just glazed right over i didn't notice it and um, it felt like a really good place to begin the book because I knew I was going to do a lot of this stuff too. I was going to play around with, you know, philosophical ideas. I was going to have narrators that interjected. I was going to have, um, you know, this very like stylistically, you know, um, spare approach to scene work and that kind of stuff. And then I also knew that I wanted to introduce the idea of like, um, 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 Nietzsche's idea of not historical recurrence. Now I'm mixing it up again, Michael. Um, eternal return mm-hmm. and um, introduce that to kind of seed in people's minds some of the weird stuff the book was going to do with um, with with time and relationship and repetition and um, and parallel universes. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much, um, Cadwell. And let's go ahead and continue along these lines um, of relating things to bookstores for a moment. Some of the characters in this book work in a bookstore. Can you tell us why you uh, chose to set your characters and part of your book in a bookshop? Have you worked in a bookshop before? Yeah, not exactly. I did not, I haven't worked at a bookstore per se, but I did work at MIT Coop in Boston mm-hmm. and they sold, you know, um, hoodies and all, you know, all the MIT stuff that people want, you know, um, when they, when they're either at the school or they're tourists visiting from outside. And um, they also sold books, you know, mm-hmm. and I, you know, very early on, 
when I was just publishing short stories, I had, you know, the great experience of having one of my short stories show up in um, a magazine that showed up in the store. So mm-hmm. I got um, one of my early publications was in Asimov Science Fiction. Mm-hmm. And um, that story ended up showing up in the store. And it was really, it was just a really neat moment for me as a young writer that hadn't gotten a lot of stuff out yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had their bookstore section, which I interacted with on occasion, but I wasn't in the bookstore section. There was other people doing that. I was more of a cashier. Um, but, you know, with the, you know, with the tour of the lesson, I interacted with a lot of bookstores and I, it, it, it felt like a good um, way of bringing some of that in. And then I talked to some people that worked at bookstores to, you know, try to do a good job. I hope I did, you know, it's like one of those things where, you know, I definitely was trying to pull a lot of threads together. Like I wanted it to be a co-op bookstore. I wanted it to have like, you know, anarchist co-op roots. And I also wanted it to be really like genre focused. And that was some of the stuff that I sort of pulled in on my own by, you know, grabbing things from different places. But, you know, there's a lot of bookstores in Boston. I talked to some people that worked at them and it just felt like a a really good fit to introduce some of the solidarity economics um, aspects of the book. Yeah, that's great. I definitely thought you had worked at a bookstore when I read it. So you did a good job. And if you ever want to be a guest bookseller, just let me know. Um, <laughs> oh, that would be fun. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, yeah. I now want to ask you about a passage from your book. Uh, and that passage is as follows. Quote, every moment is eternal. Every story carries a bit of the past with it, like a long poem with stanzas and breaks and refrains. The same is true across timelines, too. If the world is born a billion times in parallel, all those iterations will spring up like a forest of the same wood, repeating themselves up into their leaves and across the whole forest of worlds, end quote. Um, Cadwell, I've had similar thoughts along the lines of this passage. I'm a fan of Brian Greene and pop physics and like to read about uh, string theory, et cetera. Can you explain what is going on in this passage for our listeners and um, maybe elaborate a little bit? Right. Um, so yeah, this was this section in particular is in conversation with um, the what we talked about earlier, um, the unbearable nightness of being, and the idea of eternal return specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, you know, on a on a craft level, on on a story level, I was using that section to kind of hint to people some things are going to get weird later on, you know, um, without telling them what exactly was going to get weird. Um, and so, you know, part of it was the hope that people would read that section and keep it in their mind for when, um, you know, when cow shows up again, when multiverse, you know, um, um, theory, um, shows up in a narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's, it's basically, um, so, you know, I'm playing around with many worlds principle, this idea that, you know, um, Hugh Everett um, developed, but I'm also thinking a lot about um, fate, you know, things that feel like they're fated to happen and trying to introduce that concept or that idea across, you know, many worlds or trying to take this concept of, um, you know, historical recurrence and eternal return and make this connection to multiversal theory. And um, 
And this is really important for Cal as a character because he's kind of looking for himself in other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that line of, um, there's a line that follows that section that you read. And it's like, um, I'm going to butcher my own words, but it's um, for someone standing inside the forest, um, there would be no way out in every direction, a mirror, right? And so introducing the idea of many worlds, introducing the idea of eternal return or things repeating over time, um, historical recurrence specifically, and also introducing this, this idea of, um, of mirroring, that things in history mirror other things in history, and that potentially that would be happening across many timelines too, and why that would be of particular interest to a person like Cal, who's trying to deal with his own trauma by sort of experiencing the trauma of other people. It's a strange thing to do, but it's um, it's something that um, the, my, that character is exploring in the book. Listeners, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Cadwell Turnbull. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Cadwell Turnbull, author of No Gods, No Monsters, which is published by our friends at Blackstone Publishing. Um, Cadwell, this book, um, it opens up two weeks before the fracture. Lincoln is dead. Who is Lincoln? And for our listeners, uh, can you please explain the strange events uh, surrounding this death? Okay, so... Before we know anything weird is happening with Lincoln, what we know about Lincoln is that um, he is the brother of one of my um, main characters, Leda, um, who works at um, this this co-op bookstore in the book. And um, we also know that Lincoln has struggled at at various times in his life with addiction. Mm -hmm. And that um, when Lena and Lincoln kind of... um, when their relationship split apart, it was during a time when he was, you know, you know, particularly circling the drain, he was going down and um, Lena made a decision, I think for herself to kind of step away from that relationship. Um, And then, you know, also it was attached to some guilt and shame on on her part for things that she kind of put on herself. And um, what we think has happened with Lincoln is that he's, you know, he has some kind of um, um, psychological break and he's, you know, running through the streets naked and he has an altercation with a cop and the cop shoots him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for, you know, several chapters, we continue to think that's all that's going on. 
mm-hmm. and Lena has a lot of questions about why that might have happened, and you know it's introduced that there is a tape of the of the incident, and so you know if you have if you know nothing about the book the the the, the description spoils a lot of things in the book right, um, but if you know nothing about the book up until that point you think it's you know it's just an officer involved shooting, mm-hmm. then you know, she gets the book through mysterious means. I mean, she gets the video through mm-hmm. mysterious means. And um, when she's looking at the video, what she first sees is not her brother Lincoln, but a werewolf. Mm-hmm. And um, that werewolf, you know, she she isn't able to make the connection right away. But once the werewolf is, is shot by the cop and it dies, um, the werewolf changes back into its human form and in that moment, she recognizes that um, this werewolf is her brother, Lincoln. Right. And um, why werewolves? And what I mean by that question is, what is it about the history and folklore surrounding werewolves uh, that made this specific type of metamorphosis appropriate for the story you were telling? Yeah. Um, you know, on the, on, the, on the nerdy level, you know, I just, you know, really love shapeshifters generally mm-hmm. uh, i love them in all media one of my favorite um tv shows growing up was buffy the vampire slayer and it had um it, it was mostly focused on vampires but it also had shifters mm-hmm. and one of my favorite movies was underworld you know which you know features werewolves heavily um i also really fondly remember uh, an american werewolf in paris that was one of um my favorite movies as a kid and wolf you know jack nicholson movie Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just love, I just love wolves in media, you know, me and my wife read urban fantasy all the time. And, it, you know, there's, there's, you know, shifters feature heavenly in urban fantasy. And I was definitely drawing on some of those tropes for the story. Um, but I also, you know, it, it seemed like a good, you know, exploration of different size to a person. You know, I, I feel like when werewolves show up in media, is to explore different aspects of a human being and the things that they struggle with within themselves, like inner darkness or, you know, inner struggle. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with Lincoln, there's this kind of relationship that's being drawn with Lincoln and then another character, Rebecca, to, um, you know, shifting and addiction, you know, Mm -hmm. and magic being an addictive thing within a person or, you know, it having a particular kind of draw that can be destabilizing us at times um, if you listen to it um, or you let it rule you. And so with that, it seemed like a really good metaphor. Um, it also, you know, I, I try not to be didactic about these sort of things. Um, when you're, when I'm talking about the book in, in, in situations where I have to give like a quick blurb, I'll, I'll say things like, you know, it's, it has a really strong relationship to, you know, marginalization, you know, um, and it's, it can be in some ways analogous to it. I, it's a kind of oversimplification, but it does act in the scene as, um, uh, you know, a sort of otherness that viewed from the outside may seem threatening, but within, when you see context, you realize that it's not like Lincoln, whatever is going on with Lincoln, um, 
is deeper than that scene in and and that shot on that video. Lincoln, you know, up until that point, you know, has has been dealing with his addiction, has been turning his life around, and however he ended up in that form, it wasn't to be a threat, but it would be perceived that way because, you know, there's, there's a big werewolf on the, on the streets of Boston, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, that to me, you know, works at a meta- as a metaphor in some way. Cadwell, do you think that police officers really see the people they are shooting, the people they are murdering oftentimes as monsters? Right, right. Yeah, this is a yeah, this is a thing that I'm I'm sort of dancing around. Um mm-hmm. yes. Yes. Um truthfully, yes. Mm-hmm. Um I feel like, and it's not just police officers, I think it's it's a society at large. It's a narrative that we we tell when these things happen. We try to, you know, create that monster to justify mm-hmm. that act. And, um, you know, oftentimes that means, you know, taking something, taking something from that person's life and, you know, expanding it so that it's, that's the only thing about that person. Or it is, you know, looking at that moment, you know, I'm, you know, talking about videos of police shootings in, in particular mm-hmm. and, um, making excuses for the reaction that the cop has had based on a particular action that, you know, oftentimes a person of color has made in that video. Um, they, a quick movement, you know, um, even, even, you know, what people call resisting, which is like trying to stop someone from like suffocating you or, um, you know, reactions that when I'm looking at a video can, I can certainly see as, a fear-based response because it's not like the person in that situation doesn't know the threat there or what could happen. Um, you know, people respond in all sorts of ways when they're afraid. And but the the conversation is never about what about that situation is stressful or um, will cause someone to be afraid. Mm-hmm. On the victim side, it tends to be about what is threatening to the police officer. And um, yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the book is, is exploring the ways that we, um, we look back at stories and those stories change and morph over time to, to create, you know, enemies. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think this whole concept, Cadwell, is very powerful. And it's one of those things that once I realized what was happening, um, I was like, this is so obvious. Like, I can't believe it's never been done before. Um, but the fact that that's what makes all great books great though, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is, you know, when something that is like right there on the, the periphery of everyone's everyday thoughts, it like suddenly is brought out. Um, so fantastic. And, and thank you for writing it. Um, I want to switch gears now for a moment um, and ask you if you read comics. And I ask because there are two recent series that I see parallels to in this book. Uh, Those series being um, Immortal Hulk, published by Marvel Comics, and The Department of Truth, uh, published by Image Comics. Have you ever read comics or have they influenced you in any way? Um, 
The the short answer is not really. Um, mm. I I have read I have read graphic novels, uh, particularly you know the two graphic novels that I've read are both Alan Moore graphic novels, uh, mm-hmm. The Watchmen and um, V for Vendetta. Um, no, and the reason why I I've avoided comics is the same reason why I avoid video games. I have like a very um, obsessive personality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you know, a good story, a good example of this is, you know, when I was in high school, one of my best friends at the time gave me his PS, I think it was his PS2, mm-hmm. and he gave me a bunch of games. And one of the games he gave me was um, Shadow of the Colossus. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. game. And I just played that and nothing else mm-hmm. for months. And, you know, he's still kind of angry with me because I played it, finished it, and then started it over like at least two dozen times, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and because I know that about myself, and I think part of my, part of the reason I did that was because I knew that there was another game in there. It was Kingdom Hearts. And I knew that if I started Kingdom Hearts, I would also play that forever. Mm-hmm. Um, comic books felt like that to me. Like I felt like if I started comic books when I was a kid, I would just be buying a bunch of comic books and I would just never stop. I feel like it's one of those things that, you know, there's a version of me that has a million comic books on the shelf. Um, I avoided it because I was afraid of myself. I thought that I was going to, you know, fall too deeply. Mm-hmm. I will say that despite not being into comic books, I did grow up, you know, I was a huge fan of TV and I, I grew up watching all the adaptations of like, you know, f- famous comic book characters. Um, I'm interested in these two, these two books though. I want you to, you know, like what about it is, is, you know, drawing parallels for you. I'll send you um, a note with the books, but I think um, Immortal Hulk, which is a series that is about to end, it just has a lot of stuff that's on the periphery of like kind of horror and kind of um, making, um, bringing a lot of social issues to the forefront. And then the Department of Truth um, plays a a lot with like secret societies and organizations and things of that nature, which which we'll talk about in a moment. yeah, but um, it's it's really, really good. Um, but I hear you. There's a gentleman I used to work with at NC State Libraries, uh, David Goldsmith, who used to be a comic book dealer. And he was like, I just had to stop because I'm either like all in or not in at all. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the books that you mentioned, The Watchmen, I'm happy to see that being taught in a lot of schools uh, lately. I know that we've sold a ton of them to high school students this summer. That's right. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Um so I mentioned secret societies. There is a lot going on in your book with secret societies and organizations. Uh, did you do any research on such entities for your book? And either way, um, can you tell me about these societies and their place in your novel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's a moment in the book where I, I talk about um, how bees ventilate their nests and make a connection to like um, um um, this character, his name is Harold Shiner. Um, his relationship to um, secret societies as not being strictly academic, like the things that he, that makes him think about bees uh, are some of the same things that brings him to think about secret societies and how they operate in the world. And um, that comment about it not being strictly academic is I think true of me, <laughs> you know, like, honestly, like I, I would like to say that I researched that because I was working on this book, but I'm just interested in it. You know, I'm interested in 
you know, you know, on the flip side, I'm also interested in, in, in cooperatives for, you know, kind of similar reasons. I'm interested in organizations that are self-made, that are both like um, opaque, hard to see or hard to understand, that are not transparent. And then the flip side of that, trying to create like transparent institutions where the people involved and, you know, potentially people outside know what's going on and fully know what's going on within those institutions. And so we can see examples within our world of both of those things, you know, mm. you know, organizations and societies that are, th their whole goal is to remain unseen and then other organizations that are trying to be as visible as possible. Mm. And I, I kind of put those up against each other within the book. There's a researcher, um, an academic who studies both of those as a part of her social organization discipline. Mm. Um, but yeah, I did do, I did do research. Some of that research was not research. You know, some right. of that research was just like, you know, being interested in this thing over time. There was a particular, um, you know, moment a few years ago when I was working at um, Amazon, I was working for, you know, Alexa. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a group of friends th there. We worked in the same office. We, we just, we all were, I think, a bit traumatized by working there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and one of the things that we just got into, you know, um, strangely, is just we created a bunch of like, you know, where they, we created lore and we would, we, we had like this elaborate lore that, you know, that just made sense for the, the friend group specifically. We, um, we took, <laughs> should I say this out loud? We took, we had, there was a person that, um, was one of our supervisors and we sort of like created like this kind of mythology around him, you know, mm -hmm. just for, just for fun. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember at one point we were reading this article about, um, you know, people that work at Facebook and that have been kind of, um, you know, in charge of, you know, of, of finding and, you know, flagging sensitive content, things that are, you know, shouldn't be on Facebook for, you know, you know, reasons that are, you know, they're traumatizing mm -hmm. and, you know, how those people doing that job over time would experience PTSD mm -hmm. and they would, they would bond by getting into stuff like secret organizations. And they would talk about this kind of stuff, you know, you know, within their friend groups. And we read that in that friend group and we're like, we should, maybe we should get out of here. You know, like um, there was just too many parallels, but I'll say during that time, I guess I was reading um, about um, Scientology mm -hmm. and some of the, there was this thing called Operation Snow White that I had never heard of. Mm -hmm. And when I heard about it, it was just insane. It was like this, like far reaching conspiracy. And I'm like, this is, this is just documented stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, then I started getting into, um, I started reading about the golden order of the hermetic dawn and, um, um, the, you know, the telemites, you know, all of these different organizations. And as I was reading about them, I started seeing all of these connections and relationships to them. Like people within one organization would be, would know other people within other organizations. They would be friends. They would hang out with each other they would join each other's organizations. They mm. would they would do weird like occult rituals, like 
And these were not just like anonymous people. Some of these people were like writers and actors and, um, you know, celebrities of different kinds, you know, and I was just like, what is going on here? And so I just kind of brought all of that stuff into bear in the book. I was just, you know, playing around with all of those different things and making connections and using it to kind of create this kind of, um, because it seemed pretty clear early on that if monsters were invisible for a long time, it would have to be because of secret societies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right on. Um, Thank you, Cadwell. And I I have to say that um, I used to live in another city where I would go, you know, down to the subway and there would be these days where there'd be Scientologists giving like stress tests on one side of the subway entrance. And on the other side, there would be all these folks in Guy Fawkes masks yelling at the Scientologists. And um, so, yes, I I did some research on that stuff as well. And it's, it's all very interesting, but um, the world is super strange, isn't it? (laughs) It is. It is. And um, I also have to say that um, as an independent bookstore you know we have a whole business model uh based on people being traumatized by amazon so um i appreciate you saying right (laughs) um well thank you and cadwell we've we've barely touched uh on the surface of what's going on here in your book And, and by design um i haven't asked you about the character dragon because the discovery of what's going on with dragon was one of the most interesting revelations for me as a reader and i don't want to spoil that for anyone um but i, I do want to yeah 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 a great character um i do want to ask you before we sign off though uh about a scene in which a police officer knocks on a character rebecca's door and hands her a list of names um can you tell our listeners what's going on here so, you know, I got it in my head that it would be a very interesting thing to do in a book. Um, you know, it would be interesting to reveal this thing, reveal that monsters are real and exist in the world, and then have some something, some force, some entity of some kind immediately try to cover that up or obscure it, mm-hmm. um, you know, to kind of hint at the the deeper mechanisms at play here that, you know, there's, you know, not only are monsters are real, but there, there are even deeper powers than that. And um, this was just a really early example of, you know, trying to, you know, see that in people's minds. Um, Rebecca and her pack, um, you know, she's a werewolf. She has, you know, werewolf um, friends. They get it in their mind that they're going to, you know, start a movement a monster movement mm-hmm. and you know this is before anyone even knows that they exist and it's kind of a, as a protective measure because they've they've sort of realized because of what happened to lincoln who was also a member of that pack um that they're extremely vulnerable if people don't know that they're that they're there you know people might misunderstand things in the way that they misunderstood lincoln being out on the street mm-hmm. and um you know they do this and you know the existence of that pack is also really interesting within the book because they're they're divorced from any of the other um you know uh, you know the, they're divorced from the underworld where monsters are from they they exist outside of all of that context and they don't know about it themselves mm-hmm. you know and so also revealing that there's deeper things at play here and um you know, I think after they do that event, after they do, they do like a, um, 
they do, you know, uh, uh, can I describe this? So in order to reveal themselves to the world, they, they turn into their wolf forms and they stand on a highway, you know, where they would be in clear view of people and cameras and everything. And then they shift back, you know, and, and, you know, for them, it's like, make this absolutely clear what we are. Um, and, you know, I think that they had plans after that to do more, you know, they, they wanted to do a lot more resistance work and, um, or more movement work. And what happens instead is that officers show up at the scene and escort them off in like a very like um, casual way. And they're like, okay. And then officers show up to each of their houses and just hand them, you know, a list of names. And on the, um, on the, that sheet of paper are names of people that they might tangentially acquaintances, you know, um, people that, you know, um, they know from different part walks of their life, but on that list as well is, you know, close family members, childhood friends, um, basically an accounting of their entire life. And I think that that moment is supposed to, you know, you know, see for the reader that whatever is at play, they have a lot of tools at their disposal mm-hmm. and that they're dangerous that like an action like that in a, in and of itself is very dangerous. They're, they're revealing to Rebecca and her pack in a very subtle way. And I think it's by design that they do it this way that they could squash them at any moment and not only squash them at any moment, they could erase them at everyone that they know. And, but they don't explain it that way. And I think it's a more powerful message that they just hand them the paper and then walk away. And that you can observe because Rebecca observes, you know, when the cop shows up that the police officer is glazed over. It looks like someone is puppeting him. And that alone is creepy. And the fact that he hands her a paper that has all of the names of everyone she knows on it is infinitely more creepy. And it just destroys that movement before it even starts. Everyone just kind of runs away and scatters, you know, and that for the next year, they're just on their back foot until they make another decision. Mm -hmm. Right on. Well, thank you, Cadwell. And thank you for writing this excellent book. Again, I'm so happy to have you here in Raleigh. And I cannot wait for our listeners to discover this excellent new book. Listeners, I've been speaking with Cadwell Turnbull, author, No Gods, No Monsters, which is published by our friends at Blackstone Publishing. And listeners, if you are listening to this podcast on the week of its release, please note that Cadwell will be at Quill Ridge Books on September 20th discussing this novel with our friend John Kessel. We hope to see you there. Cadwell, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Once again, I would like to thank Cadwell Turnbull for joining me. Signed copies of No Gods, No Monsters can be purchased from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.